Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 38, the Whiskey Ring Scandal featuring America's first special prosecutor and one of the first tell-all books by a presidential confidant. On Saturday, February 12, 1876, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Morrison R. Waite, traveled to the White House. He was there to do something no judge before him had ever done. Justice Waite was about to swear in the President of the United States as a witness on behalf of the defendant in a criminal trial. Ulysses S. Grant's private secretary was charged with corruption, and Grant was willing to do anything to save him from prison. Rather than rooting out corruption in his own administration, Grant was fighting to get it off the hook. It wasn't a good look. His own cabinet was against it. But Grant valued loyalty above all else, and his secretary had always been faithful to him. Now it was time for the president to return the favor. Not to mention, the defendant knew all Grant's secrets. Sending a slighted man to prison didn't seem like a good idea. So, over the objections of his advisors, the president put his right hand on the Bible. He swore to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Then, President Grant proceeded with one of American history's most bewildering performances of executive amnesia. Somehow, a man known for his photographic memory had forgotten almost everything he ever discussed with his closest staff member. At least, nearly everything relevant to the Whiskey Ring scandal. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream political scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type political scandals in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. There's been a question mark next to President Ulysses S. Grant's name in history for almost 150 years. He began his time in office as a humble war hero, but left the White House mired in scandal. We may never know if Grant himself was corrupt or just incredibly naive and unlucky. If you've been following this podcast from the beginning, you already know a little bit about the Grant administration. Back in our fourth episode, Scandal Number 51, we talked about the Black Friday scandal. President Grant was manipulated by his unscrupulous brother-in-law who took bribes to help two railroad tycoons corner the gold market. Grant also weathered yet another noteworthy scandal, the Credit Mobilier Affair, which we'll discuss in a couple months. For now, suffice it to say that again, Grant found himself trusting all the wrong people. And of course, there was a lot of money changing hands. You've heard the saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, if Ulysses S. Grant was innocent, then he was fooled over and over throughout his two terms as president. Not by the same people repeatedly, but always by members of his inner circle, from his in-laws to his vice president. Or maybe it was Grant who did the fooling, carefully skirting the consequences of his scheming and letting others take the fall. Today we'll make the case for both Grants, the loyal friend and poor judge of character, and the savagely corrupt, cynical politician who lined his war chest with funds diverted from the federal treasury. In the end, it'll be your job to decide which was the real Ulysses S. Grant. But first, we need to introduce you to a few of Grant's friends. On April 9, 1865, two men stood at attention in the parlor of a luxurious Virginia home. One was General Ulysses S. Grant, still dressed in battle clothes and tracking mud on the floors. Slightly behind him, attending to the general's every need, was his aide-de-camp, Orville E. Babcock. They waited nervously as the clock inched ever closer to 1 p.m. At the appointed hour, he came. Confederate General Robert E. Lee himself, public enemy number one. He was there to surrender and end the Civil War. The terms of Lee's surrender were written out on the spot, and both men signed. Grant was generous, allowing Lee's soldiers to keep their horses, land, and sidearms. It was his sincere desire that Confederate soldiers be reintegrated into the United States with as little difficulty as possible. After watching so many of his men lose their lives during the Civil War, Grant wanted a lasting peace, not eternal skirmishing between North and South. 
Orville Babcock stood beside his commanding officer, not only on the day of Robert E. Lee's surrender, but on all the difficult days that came after it. In 1866, when Grant became the United States' first four-star general and general-in-chief of the U.S. Army, Babcock was at his side. The next year, he trusted Babcock to travel to the South to study the progress of Reconstruction. Babcock uncovered a white supremacist conspiracy to terrorize black people in the South by dressing police officers in Confederate soldiers' uniforms. The two were as close as friends and colleagues could be. So it should come as no surprise that when Grant was elected president in 1868, Babcock accompanied his boss to the White House as his private secretary. That may sound like a low-level administrative role, but it was quite the opposite. The job of presidential private secretary is still around today, just by a different name, chief of staff. If you want to make an appointment with the president, you go through their chief of staff. If you want a job at the White House, the chief of staff hires you. If you perform poorly, the chief of staff fires you. And if the president needs to be told something upsetting, the chief of staff breaks the bad news. So you can imagine how devastating it could be to a presidential administration if a chief of staff didn't have the president's best interests in mind. Say, for instance, if the chief of staff was collaborating with a ring of corrupt tax officials and whiskey distillers to evade millions of dollars in taxes. And if those illicit profits were being distributed amongst a cabal of Missouri Republicans who might drag the Republican president down with them if they were caught. That would be the infamous whiskey ring. And we'll get there, but before we get into the nitty-gritty of their massive grift, there's one more player to meet. If there was a Scammers Hall of Fame, John McDonald would have pride of place. Like Grant and Babcock, McDonald was a Union soldier, but he was more interested in profiting from the war than winning it. Orphaned as a young boy, McDonald quickly learned how to hold his own with the hardened canal men of the 19th century shipping industry. By the age of 15, he'd worked his way across the country on riverboats from New York to Missouri. When he arrived in St. Louis, McDonald decided to stay, much to the detriment of honest citizens who already called the city home. Officially, John McDonald was a passenger agent soliciting customers for a steamboat company. In reality, he was crooked from the day he stepped foot in St. Louis. McDonald organized a gang of roughnecks to threaten his fellow agents into taking their marching orders from him rather than their own employers. After that, any company that wanted to sell berths on their boats had to first make friends with John McDonald and he preferred his friendships in cash. From there, it was off to the races. McDonald dabbled in bribing judges, rigging elections, and various petty crimes. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, he'd already scraped together enough cash through his sundry misdeeds to buy his very own steamboat. Not bad for a 29-year-old. But for all his scamming, John McDonald was a loyal patriot. Well, sort of. 
He paid out of his own pocket to outfit the 8th Missouri Regiment, then marched with them in some of the Civil War's most important battles, where he fought valiantly enough to be recognized by President Lincoln himself. The Civil War left plenty of people in both the North and South destitute. Not John McDonald. After the Union took Memphis, Tennessee, he landed a cushy job overseeing rentals of formerly Confederate-controlled land and buildings. Rents were collected in cash, so it was easy for McDonald to skim a little off the top. Whoever said war is hell obviously wasn't serving with this guy. McDonald even allegedly crossed enemy lines and brokered a deal to sell Confederate cotton for $50 per bale, or about $1,500 in today's money. As you might imagine, McDonald wasn't well-liked by his peers, least of all his commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel James Peckham. In March of 1862, McDonald called his boss an SOB several times and challenged him to a duel. When Peckham ordered him to hand over his sword, McDonald refused with some choice words. McDonald was arrested and court-martialed for conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. He was found guilty, but ultimately his sentence was rescinded. We don't know exactly why McDonald got a second chance, but it was probably because he had friends in high places. Among them, General Grant and President Lincoln, who had noticed his contributions to the war effort and were never lucky enough to meet the foul-mouthed man who threatened Lieutenant Colonel Peckham. Grant described McDonald as not an educated man, but a man that had seen a great deal of the world and of people. And indeed, that was the way he presented himself to Grant and Lincoln. Just a hard luck orphan boy who became a self-made riverboat entrepreneur and Union Brigadier General. It was a moving story, and his flamboyant personality was hard to forget. That's why, after the war, General Grant kept in touch with John McDonald, and in October of 1869, offered him a government job at home in St. Louis, Missouri. McDonald accepted the offer. He would serve as Inspector of Internal Revenue for the Missouri District. In other words, the local tax collector. And nobody handles more money than a tax collector. It was a dream job for a guy who had a habit of pocketing a few pennies of every dollar that passed through his grubby hands. And it provided the perfect opportunity for new, ambitious scams. Namely, scams revolving around the whiskey industry. St. Louis was full of whiskey distilleries, and every distiller in town was tired of paying 70 cents per gallon in taxes. That would be about $15 per gallon today, a pretty high tax rate, especially for a country still recovering from a civil war. And if McDonald got the distillers a break on their taxes, well, he knew they'd be only too happy to grease his palm. Coming up, the tax collector looks out for number one, while Grant and Babcock reap the benefits of looking the other way. Now, back to the story. In 1869, newly elected President Ulysses S. Grant entered the White House and began handing out presidential appointments to his Civil War comrades. His right-hand man, Orville Babcock, was appointed Grant's private secretary, 
a.k.a. his chief of staff. And former Brigadier General John McDonald, a shameless grifter, became Inspector of Internal Revenue for the Missouri District. The Civil War had quite literally divided the nation, pitting fathers against sons and brothers against brothers. Now, with the country so recently reunited, it was hard for the incoming president to trust anyone who hadn't fought alongside him. There were secret Confederate sympathizers everywhere. The Ku Klux Klan was gaining members every day. Overlooking a few hiccups in a good Union soldier's past was worth it to keep Confederates and Klansmen out of the government. Especially with so many members of Grant's own Republican Party intent on brushing the past under the rug and allowing the old slave owner aristocracy back into government. With enemies on all sides, Grant placed an ever greater emphasis on personal loyalty within his administration. More than anyone else, he trusted Orville Babcock, who would willingly have taken a bullet for him during the war. And Babcock encouraged him to appoint people like John McDonald, who might have made a few mistakes, but who were ultimately loyal to the president. At least, that would be Grant's side of the story. John McDonald disagreed. He would later claim that President Grant appointed him because of, not in spite of, his shady past. As McDonald told it, he was sent to Missouri with very specific marching orders from the president, establish a substantial Republican war chest to ensure Grant's re-election by any means necessary. Whether Grant was naive or conniving, the end result was the same. When John McDonald started his new job as a tax collector, he immediately began bribing his way through every level of the whiskey industry. To make money, he'd need to spend money. McDonald needed distillers, storekeepers, fellow revenue agents, and even clerks at the U.S. Treasury to work with him on the scam. It took two years of bribing everyone who could be bought and blackmailing those who couldn't, but finally, in 1871, the whiskey ring began raking in cash. The scam itself was simple. Distillers produced about three times as much whiskey as they reported to the federal government. People called gaugers kept a record of each barrel of whiskey that was actually produced, and every Saturday, they reported the total to their nearest crooked tax agent. The distillers then paid 35 cents per gallon on the unreported whiskey, compared to the 70-cent tax on the legitimate barrels. Those monies were gathered up and taken to John McDonald, who distributed each week's proceeds among all the officials in the whiskey ring, after pocketing his own share, of course. In exchange for their bribes, the crooks pried federal tax stickers off of taxed whiskey barrels and applied them to the untaxed ones, making it look like the proper duties had been paid. Then, crooked storekeepers sold the whiskey at a slightly lower price than the properly taxed barrels. Everyone won, except the federal government. McDonald's job as Inspector of Internal Revenue netted him $3,000 per year, which would be about $57,000 annually in 2020. It was a solid, middle-class job. Most men would have been glad to have it. But far more exciting to greedy McDonald was the $50,000 he pocketed in the first year of the whiskey ring scam. 
That's about a million bucks today. Meanwhile, the U.S. Treasury was losing the equivalent of $32 million worth of annual tax revenue. That kind of money could have accomplished a great deal with so much of America ravaged by the Civil War. But the larger-than-life McDonald felt he could put the cash to better use than the IRS. He had a mistress to entertain, and she appreciated the finer things in life. He also liked to throw expensive parties and invite the whole town. As for President Grant, he was just glad McDonald seemed to be getting on so well with the Missouri political establishment. Grant felt that his 1872 re-election campaign might be in jeopardy if liberal Republicans like Missouri Senator Carl Schurz kept gaining ground. With McDonald stationed in Missouri, at least Grant had an inside man to report back to him on whatever Schurz and his allies were up to. When we say liberal Republicans here, we don't just mean members of the Republican Party with liberal views. The liberal Republicans were an entirely new political party that split off from the Republican Party solely to oppose Grant. They called Grant's wing of the party the Radical Republicans. The liberal Republicans saw Grant as a corrupt executive bent on increasing the power of the federal government, then using it to hand out plum positions to his friends and allies. They also believed that with the Civil War over, it was time to remove the federal troops still occupying the South. Former Union General Grant and his radical Republicans, on the other hand, saw the liberal Republicans as Confederate sympathizers. 1872 was shaping up to be an unprecedented presidential election. The Democratic Party agreed not to run a candidate of their own and instead threw their support behind liberal Republican Horace Greeley. They believed he had the best chance to beat Grant. Greeley himself was more of a hippie peacenik than a liberal Republican. A newspaper publisher by trade, he hired Karl Marx as a foreign correspondent. He had once tried to found a socialist agrarian utopia in Colorado. He despised Democrats, who were a conservative party at the time. But now, he was essentially the Democratic candidate for president. It was a nasty, unpredictable campaign. Grant's allies tried to paint Greeley as sympathetic to the Ku Klux Klan, even though Greeley had been a vocal abolitionist and advocated for complete racial equality. Greeley, on the other hand, argued that Grant's policies would lead to a new secessionist movement. With a formidable opponent siphoning support away from the Republican Party, Grant knew he'd need to spend big to keep his seat. Luckily, and mysteriously, after John McDonald and his whiskey ring started operating, Grant and his allies seemed to receive a lot of large donations. It's impossible to say exactly how much the whiskey ring helped with Grant's re-election bid, mostly because of the completely unprecedented events of the fall of 1872. In October, Horace Greeley's beloved wife was taken ill. Five days before the election, she died. Greeley was inconsolable and unable to campaign. Brokenhearted, Greeley himself died a month later. 
He breathed his last breath after the popular vote had already been counted, but before a single electoral ballot had been cast. To this day, it's the only time a presidential candidate has died during an election. Even if Greeley had lived, Grant won in a landslide with 286 electoral votes. With their candidate deceased and their cause in shambles, the Liberal Republican Party dissolved by the end of the year. Another term for Grant would mean another term for Orville Babcock, too. Grant remained absolutely loyal to his closest colleague. After the 1872 election, Babcock moved back into his office, which was directly outside Grant's. Anyone who wanted to see the president had to get by Babcock first. At the time, the rest of the country didn't know that Babcock was corrupt. He was disliked by the political establishment, but mostly just because he was smug about his control over Grant's calendar. In retrospect, though, Babcock likely took even more bribes than we know about. That plum office right outside Grant's would have made the ideal location for a subtle cash handoff. As for the whiskey ring, well, with Grant back in office, they looked forward to at least another four years of big profits uninterrupted by pesky federal investigators. And for a while, it looked like they were right. Through 1873, the machine John McDonald had built hummed right along. It was like printing money. On the rare occasions when tax collectors who weren't corrupt came to Missouri, the whiskey rings inside men at the Treasury warned McDonald, and he put out the word. When the goody two-shoes tax men left, it was back to taxing only a third of the whiskey produced. Periodically, rumors about the whiskey rings circulated in Washington. But anyone who tried to investigate ran into a brick wall of bribed IRS agents and Treasury clerks. The whiskey ring became the Sasquatch of government corruption. Plenty of people believed in its existence, but no honest man inside the federal government could prove he'd seen it for himself. It might have carried on like that forever, or at least through the end of the Grant administration, if it hadn't been for one man. Benjamin H. Bristow. Named Secretary of the U.S. Treasury in June of 1874, he had his eye on the whiskey distilleries of Missouri from his first day on the job. But even Bristow had no idea how deep the corruption ran, or that the president who appointed him might be involved. Coming up, Bristow busts the whiskey ring. Now, back to the story. In June of 1874, President Ulysses S. Grant appointed a new Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, Benjamin H. Bristow. Like most of Grant's appointees, Bristow had served under General Grant in the Civil War. After the war, President Grant had picked Bristow as the first Solicitor General in 1870. The brand new position put him in charge of arguing the government side of federal cases, often before the Supreme Court. Bristow especially hated the Ku Klux Klan. During his time as Solicitor General, he worked with the Attorney General to ruthlessly prosecute thousands of Klansmen. 
He was so effective that the National Klan laid low for two full years until he was out of office. But if there was one thing Benjamin Bristow hated even more than the Klan, it was corruption. And that's where President Grant misjudged his man. When Bristow accepted the office of Treasury Secretary, he wasn't thinking about Grant's best interests. He was prepared to do the right thing for his country, no matter what it took or who it hurt. He was also doing the right thing for himself. If Grant was proven corrupt, Bristow wasn't going down with the ship. After taking office, he sent that message loud and clear. Bristow cleaned house at the Treasury. He fired more than 700 people believed to be engaged in corruption. Entire high-level positions were done away with after Bristow judged them to be nothing more than fronts for accepting bribes. Back in Missouri, John McDonald started to sweat. Rumor had it that Bristow's next target would be the whiskey ring. McDonald needed to shore up his relationship with the president and fast. Lucky for him, the perfect occasion was coming right up, the St. Louis Fair, an event which both President Grant and Orville Babcock were expected to attend. McDonald appointed himself the unofficial tour guide for the president and his entourage during their visit. His mission? Make sure Grant and Babcock both left St. Louis owing him a favor. John McDonald, in his biography, made some shocking claims about the president's time at the St. Louis Fair. We'll tell you his side of the story, but you'll have to decide how much of it to believe. President Grant had a famous fondness for trotting racehorses. He even dabbled in breeding his own. The president planned to exhibit one of his homebred colts named Young Hamiltonian at the St. Louis Fair. Unfortunately for Grant, his young stallion failed to impress the judges. Until John McDonald had a word with the fair officials, that is. After that, young Hamiltonian received the blue ribbon in his next class. McDonald owned trotting horses, too. When the president complimented two of them, McDonald wasted no time selling the horses to him, along with a customized harness and carriage for the princely sum of three dollars. The package was worth thousands. That gift left the president in McDonald's debt. But there was still Babcock to consider. One Wednesday evening, while walking back from the fair, McDonald heard Babcock compliment a passing woman. She was a sight for sore eyes. So much so that men began quoting poetry on the spot and nicknamed her Sylph, which means a slender, graceful woman. Babcock wanted an introduction, and his fellow adulterer, John McDonald, was only too happy to oblige. He arranged a secret meeting that very night. From that point on, McDonald's book suggests, Babcock and Sylph carried on an affair. This brought John McDonald even farther into the president's inner circle. And the whiskey ring chief was going to need all the presidential favors he could get with Bristow on his tail. In December of 1874, Treasury Secretary Bristow convinced the Commissioner of Internal Revenue, the precursor to the IRS, to send a new investigative team to St. Louis. McDonald appealed to his friends in high places. On December 13th, 
he got a reply by telegram, and I quote, I succeeded. They will not go. We'll write you. The message was signed, Sylph. McDonald immediately understood the telegram was from Orville Babcock, and its meaning was equally plain. No investigators were coming. Babcock had talked the Commissioner of Internal Revenue out of it. Such transparent interference from the White House would have been enough to put any other corruption hunter off the case. But not Bristow. After prosecuting thousands of members of the Ku Klux Klan, nothing scared him anymore. And now he had a new piece of information. When his investigations got too close to John McDonald, the administration stepped in. Bristow knew who must be at the center of the whiskey ring. Now all he had to do was transfer all the Internal Revenue supervisors in the area to new posts. If transferring McDonald away resulted in a sudden spike in tax collections, it would be obvious that McDonald had been helping distillers evade taxes. It was President Grant himself who killed that plan. The commander-in-chief bought McDonald time by arguing that the transfers would take a while to complete. In the interim, the crooked agents could hang around and destroy any evidence. Bristow couldn't figure out how he was supposed to bust a bunch of tax evaders who had an ally in the Oval Office. He was going to need some powerful friends of his own, ones not beholden to the president. Enter the newspaper men. Shortly after Grant scuttled the transfer strategy, Bristow received a letter from George Fishback, who owned the St. Louis Democrat. As the name suggests, the local paper didn't look favorably on the Republican president. Fishback suggested that Bristow quietly collaborate with one of his own reporters, a man named Myron Colony. Colony was an unassuming local business reporter. He was responsible for gathering statistics about commerce, so it wasn't unusual for him to pop up at various distilleries to ask how business was going. The actual investigative work proved simple. All Colony had to do was observe how much grain entered the distilleries and how many barrels of whiskey came out, then compare his numbers to the tax records. After a month of such observations, it was clear that the distilleries were producing three times as much whiskey as they paid taxes on. Bristow pounced. In May, federal agents raided the St. Louis distilleries and took more than 300 men into custody. Among them, John McDonald. Not among them, Orville Babcock. Bristow suspected the president's private secretary, but he wasn't ready to move against him. Remember, Bristow was employed by the president too. Best to tread lightly when arresting his closest friends. In June, Senator John B. Henderson was appointed special prosecutor and tasked with presenting evidence against the whiskey ring before a grand jury. As a U.S. senator from Missouri, Henderson was no friend to the Grant administration. That was a good thing from Grant's perspective. With Henderson prosecuting, nobody could accuse Grant of stacking the deck in the defendant's favor. Meanwhile, John McDonald wasn't taking jail very seriously. He even bribed the guards to allow intimate visits from his mistress. As far as he was concerned, 
He was just killing time while waiting for a presidential pardon. Then the grand jury began returning indictments in the process bringing forth new evidence, including Babcock's cryptic telegrams to McDonald signed Sylph. Finally, the time was right for Bristow to confront the president about his private secretary's corruption. At first, President Grant encouraged Bristow to go after Babcock. He said, quote, let no guilty man escape if it can be avoided. Of course, Orville Babcock didn't like hearing that. He pleaded with Grant, swearing up and down that if he had protected the whiskey ring, it was unintentional. He wasn't the corrupt one. That was John McDonald, who had pulled the wool over his eyes and led him astray. Grant was moved. By August, he was back on Babcock's side. Either he genuinely believed that his friend was a hapless victim, or he was terrified of what a jilted Babcock could reveal in court. Once he decided to support Babcock, the president was all in. Even when Babcock was formally indicted, Grant didn't budge. In December, he fired the special prosecutor for insulting Babcock during his closing arguments in another whiskey ring trial. As for John McDonald, once he went on trial, a conviction came quickly. He was sentenced to serve three years in prison and a $5,000 fine. Chump change compared to the six figures he'd earned scamming. McDonald had plenty left over for more bribes. He even managed to keep throwing parties by paying his wardens to give him the use of several rooms at the local hospital. Finally, in February of 1876, Orville Babcock went on trial. The St. Louis Democrat wrote, Except for the trial of Aaron Burr and the impeachment of President Johnson, no more important trial has been held in the United States. President Grant told his cabinet that he was confident as he lived of Babcock's innocence. And what's more, he planned to testify in court to that effect. Such testimony would open Grant up to cross-examination. He could find himself being asked about anything, including his past scandals and private affairs. Under oath, he'd be compelled to answer. Grant's advisors urged him to reconsider. After much wrangling with his shocked cabinet, Grant agreed to be deposed privately in the White House under the supervision of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Rather than be directly examined by attorneys, he'd answer a list of questions submitted in advance by both the defense and the prosecution. And so he did. On February 12th of 1876, President Grant was deposed at the White House. His answers to questions about the whiskey ring were vague and noncommittal. There seemed to be some peculiar gaps in his memory. But the president remembered one thing clearly, Babcock's outstanding moral character. Grant enthusiastically described his friend's loyalty, his bravery, his exceptional job performance, and his sterling reputation. To this day, it's still the only time in American history that a sitting president has voluntarily offered testimony on behalf of the defendant in a criminal trial. The president's deposition was read aloud to the jury in St. Louis. Less than two weeks later, on February 25th, they voted to acquit Orville Babcock. 
He was the only whiskey ring leader to escape prison. Grant's testimony wasn't especially convincing. He didn't offer any new evidence. But the sheer weight of a president's sworn statement helped to sway the jury. A vote to convict would have been an accusation of perjury against the president, and the jurors weren't prepared to make such a scandalous accusation. Babcock may have gotten away scot-free, but Grant didn't. When he tried to rehire Babcock, public outrage scuttled the plan. It was the nail in the coffin of Grant's public reputation. The central question about Grant's presidency, the same question debated in the 1872 presidential election, remains unanswered. Either Grant was one of the most corrupt presidents in American history, or one of the most naive. Either he was a hopelessly loyal friend exploited by those closest to him, or he was a conniving schemer abusing his office for personal gain. They say there's only one bad apple in every barrel. But in the case of the Grant administration, it's the other way around. We'll leave it up to you to decide how likely it is that Grant was the only fresh apple in a rotten barrel. Thanks for listening to Political Scandals. We'll be back next week with scandal number 37 about President Jimmy Carter's younger brother, Billy Carter. The controversy surrounding his shady dealings with Libya became known as Billy Gate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard.